Good morning again, everybody. Thought I'd start this morning by by telling you a little story about what happened um, with Rachel and I this last January. So late this last January, Rachel and I we lost our cat Lilo, and Lilo was really old. He was probably about 17 years old or so. And he had lived with Rachel since he was about one. And then he kind of, you know, took me in as his other human when Rachel and I started dating. So I knew Lilo for about seven years and we were buddies. And after he died, Rachel and I were, you know, really grieving our cat. And I think her especially because she had had him through a lot of ups and downs in her life. So the way that I grew up, we would say that if you lost your pet, that you should go out on that same day, maybe the next day and go get a new one, right? So that way you could still be sad, but at least you had like a new pet to distract you a little bit from the grief. And I'm not sure exactly how healthy that is, but that was my instinct. And so after we lost Lilo, um, I went out and just started looking for a new cat right away. So there I was, I was like scouring websites. I was looking through all of the Humane Society profiles and one cat in particular stood out to me. They were calling him Woody. And I got kind of fixated on meeting him. And so then there was Rachel who was taking her time with grieving, probably in a little bit more of a healthy way than I was. But she indulged me and she went to meet this cat. And of course, I felt instantly in love with him, even though he was like cowering away and they had this like cat tower and it was covered with a towel so that he was like completely hidden. But I could hear this little tiny, he has this really high like mew, mew, mew. And when we put our hand in, he kind of like put his head out and we could kind of, you know, scratch him by his ears. And so needless to say, we brought him home the next day. And they told us that his name um, was Woody, but it had been given to him just two weeks prior because somebody had brought him in as a stray and they didn't know his name. So we felt okay changing his name and we changed it to, I call him Obadiah, or uh, we sometimes call him Obi-Swan Kenobi, which was kind of my dream name for him. And we tried to make him feel like right at home, but he had been through so many transitions in that previous month, you know, having been probably put in a cage and brought into the Humane Society and then coming to live with us, he was just not okay. And he spent his first two weeks hiding behind our furnace in the basement. So I don't know exactly how to describe it, but our furnace and water heater are kind of, you know, tucked away in a little space as many of them are, but there's like a place on our furnace where he could actually like get up and sit like in it, like on in it, in a place. And that's where he kind of like made his little home. And so we kept his food and his water right there nearby and we would go down and we'd try and you know, coax him out with lots of treats. And eventually he let us pet him. And then eventually he came and he laid on our laps, but he was still really skittish. It's like if he has like one tiny move that would surprise him in any way, even if you just move your arm a little quickly, it would just send him back to the furnace for hours. And even now it's been a few months, he's still a bit skittish. I mean, he's, he's adjusted, he's learned our routine and he like feels safe enough to come and like take naps on our laps and hang out with us. But still, it's like if you make one sudden move, he just like runs as fast as he can. And he either goes to the basement to his little safe place near the near the furnace or he goes upstairs under the guest bed. You know, transitions are hard. And I feel like I relate a little bit to Obi when I think about the various transitions I've faced 
the various transitions that we have faced, and I would say especially over the last year and a half, and knowing that there are some still to come. You know, sometimes I feel like I just want to go hide in a furnace for a little while. You know, I've been, yeah, super relatable cat, right, Molly? Like, sometimes that's just what I want to do. And I've been thinking a lot about transitions and the emotions associated with transitions that we're all sort of navigating right now. And in his sermon last week, Ken just mentioned Saul, who had become the Apostle Paul. And he was just kind of giving an overview of Paul's or Saul's big transition period. And so what I'd like to do is just spend a little bit of time looking more closely at that story in Acts chapter 9, just paying attention, especially to the emotions of it. So I don't like using Bible stories in like, like a prescriptive way, you know, like, oh, this is how this person did something, so we should do it this way too. Or, well, we can expect things to look just like this, you know, here's point A, B, and C. I don't think it's written for that kind of use, but I do find it helpful to use stories from scripture in a way that lets us ask, like, is there any wisdom we can glean here? Is there anything comforting or useful or descriptive in this story about someone who's maybe also experienced a massive upheaval? And so I think I think there is in this. So I'm going to read the story, but I'm going to pause at some different points to just let us think about the emotional experience behind it. And I'll copy and paste it as I as I read it here into the chat. So here's how it starts in Acts 9. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest. He asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. So with our first pause, I think we can just note that Saul was a super angry guy. Right. So you may or may not relate to that aspect of him. I think we're all wired differently that way. And if you do relate to him a little bit, if you're angry, you're probably not murderously angry, or at least I hope not. But for the sake of understanding Saul, I think it's just helpful to note his emotional state as he enters this transition in his life. It goes on. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And when I read this story last week, what stuck out to me was the part that said he fell to the ground. And it just made me wonder what exactly was it that made him fall to the ground? You know, he tells that story later in Acts 22. And in that way of telling it, he seems to say that the bright light just disoriented him. But I think, you know, falling to the ground indicates like a pretty severe disorientation, right? That means his senses were completely overwhelmed and maybe it scared him. Maybe it surprised him. Maybe his physical body just couldn't take in all of that rush of information. So that's the state that he's in. We'll go on. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I'm Jesus, whom you're per persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there, speechless. They heard the sound, but they didn't see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. So when I read that Saul's friends had to take his hands and lead him, I see a man who's experiencing 
probably more dependence on others than he's probably used to. This is a man who is well-educated, he's powerful, he's a violent alpha, right? He's a very violent man, he's a very dangerous man, and now he's having to submit to others for help. And how might he be feeling about this? We don't know exactly, but I could make some guesses about his ego. So it says, for three days, he was blind, and he didn't drink or eat anything. And so then I wonder, why didn't he eat or drink? Was that a religious choice, like fasting? Or was it just stress and fear? You know, I know like when I'm stressed, I tend to eat a little too much. When my wife is stressed, if she goes through a period of intense stress, she tends not to eat. And so it just makes me wonder about his anxiety levels. My guess is this is indicative of his emotional state, of how hard this transition is on him. So we'll go on here. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias, and the Lord called to him in a vision. um, Ananias, yes, Lord. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. In a vision, he's seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias said, I've heard many reports about this man, all of the harm that he's done to your holy people in Jerusalem, and he's come here with the authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name, right? This is a dangerous man. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and the people of Israel. I'll show him how much he has to suffer for my name. And then Ananias went to the house and entered it. And placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you might see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. And he got up, and he was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. The detail that most stands out to me here at the end of this story is that scales fell from Saul's eyes. Why scales? And I don't know exactly, but I do know that scales are really tough. They're like stronger than plastic and they're protective. So these strong protective layers that Paul had built into his way of thinking were falling away quickly, right? And he had an awakening that changed everything for him. And I can only imagine the awkwardness of taking on new sight as well as an entirely new identity, right? Things would never be the same for him. I mean, maybe I can't imagine it a little bit, right? As a queer person, as soon as I like said out loud to myself, oh yeah, I'm gay, like it kind of changed everything. I knew my life wasn't going to be the same. And some of you might have felt that as well, if that um, you or somebody that you know. And so I feel like I can relate to this and I can relate to it on another level too. I I feel this sort of transition feeling acutely with the pandemic and with our adjusting to what it's going to mean for our life going forward, right? We're not the same. You're not the same. Things are just not going to be the same. And very often, I think we have a more gradual descaling when we wake up and we find the world different than we understood it to be. But sometimes big events they kind of warrant this like tear off the band-aid descaling of our eyes 
And when that happens, I, I feel like I can look at Paul and his reaction to that whole process of like having that tear off the Band-Aid moment. And it feels validating to me because for Saul, there's anger and there's disorientation and there's surprise and there's fear and there's anxiety enough that he probably wasn't eating and drinking and some humility in realizing how much he needed others. And many of us have also been reminded of how much we depend on others for our own well-being as well. And transitions feel really unmooring. Salt was like um, completely disoriented. And we learn later on that just because he had this transition, things didn't necessarily get easier for him right away. It actually got a little bit harder before it got easier. But eventually we see that this transition led to a man who had a quieter soul, whose anger had been redirected toward injustices, and who's adjusted to just a different way of being in the world. And I think we will too, right? If we have eyes to see it, we will too. We'll adjust to different ways of being in the world that are hopefully more just. But it may take some time for us to find that equilibrium. And I think that like my cat Obadiah, we might have moments of feeling skittish, of wanting to just bolt on hide in the furnace or under the guest bed, but just remember that God will be with us and that we can learn to trust this divine being of love even more. And we can like snuggle up to this divine being and take a rest when we need it. And we can find comfort and rest and healing as we're figuring out this new normal.